0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com.
1: This episode of Battleground Ukraine is sponsored by Beer52, who this summer are offering all of our listeners a free case of 10 delicious Yorkshire craft beers. Simply go to www.beer52.com forward slash battleground and cover the five ninety five postage to receive your free case now. I'm a big fan of Beer 52. Every month, their industry experts carefully curate a new case of craft beer that showcases the very best from around the world, which is then shipped to you. This month, they're taking us to God's own country with their Yorkshire case, boasting some of the finest breweries in the country, Yorkshire should be on every beer enthusiast's bucket list. Included in this crate is Gold Rush from UK beer legend's Osset Brewery, which is a crystal clear and golden pale ale. The malts provide a subtle grainy character and bitterness, while the hops produce a range of delightful aromas. Whilst enjoying this, you can read all about the breweries and rich history and culture of brewing in Yorkshire in the award-winning Ferment magazine. And you'll even get a few free snacks included too. You can get your free case of 10 delicious craft beers from our friends at Beer 52 by simply going to www.beer52.com forward slash battleground and covering the five ninety five postage to receive your free case now. That is www.the word beer, then the numbers 52.com forward slash battleground. If after that you're unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel any time.
0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Uh, It's been another very eventful week with Ukrainians launching attacks at several points along the front with some success, uh, taking up to 100 square kilometers of occupied territory. There are signs that Russian resistance is far from robust, with footage of fleeing troops being shot down by their own side as they try and run away. It would seem that though we're still in the operating phase of the counteroffensive, the real main event hasn't quite begun yet.
1: Meanwhile, in Moscow, Vladimir Putin has taken the unusual step of summoning journalists and mill bloggers in order to reassure ultra nationalists that the counteroffensive is being contained with significant losses on the Ukrainian side. He confirmed that the Kremlin is following a waiting strategy. Holding firm until the West wearies of pouring military and diplomatic support into Ukraine, and Kyiv essentially runs out of time. Well, it's hardly a very rousing message, is it? And it doesn't seem to match the official description of the conflict as a special military operation. But it's the best that Putin can come up with in the circumstances. Let's start with the grand operations, though, Patrick. Where are we now? Do you think?
0: Well, I just come from a uh, briefing with uh, Western officials, and the key takeaways were essentially that this is the real thing. They're no longer uh, probing attacks, and the Ukrainians are making steady but costly progress. Uh, Like I said earlier, this may not be the main thrust just yet, but there is activity right along the length of the front line, even in places where there uh, wasn't really much going on before. Uh, Their assessment is that the Ukrainians have advanced about seven kilometers on the southern front, but that the Russians, uh, even though they're as I mentioned again earlier, there have been indications of uh, of people running away. Their, their assessment is that the Russians have put up a pretty well-conducted defense. Um, but the overall signal really is that the, this is early days, very, very early days. Progress is slow and grinding and will continue to be for many months to come. Now, this um, briefing backs up what we'd heard previously from the Ukrainian Deputy Defense Minister, Hanna Malyar. That's a woman, by the way, interesting to see how there are absolutely no Russian females visible in their military hierarchy, but that's by the by. Anyway, she confirmed there have been small gains north and south of Bakhmut, but the real gains have been on the southern front, just where Zaporizhia oblast meets Donetsk oblast. So that's kind of north of Mariupol. So, you know, Ukrainian armed units launching a series of tightly choreographed ground operations, moving forward, seizing tactical high ground and liberating a series of villages. I think four villages at least have been taken so far. And um, the Ukrainians are claiming 100 square kilometers have been uh, recaptured. And this has been confirmed by Evgeny Prigozhin, the the Wagner boss, who's proving to be a more reliable source of information, it seems, <laughs> in the... Russian MOD. But there seems to be a sort of pattern emerging here already, I think, of um, heavy preliminary artillery preparations to reduce the first defence lines, followed by infantry attacks supported by um, armoured fighting vehicles. So it's in a way, it's all very First World War, isn't it, Saul?
1: Well, if not First or possibly late First World War, certainly Second World War, I suppose. Uh, you know, probably the best comparison I can think of is maybe Normandy, Patrick. I mean, not the start, of course, we know the blitzkrieg moved through quite smoothly, mainly due to shock and psychological value. But but this is probably more of that, of that terrible struggle in Normandy, where, you know, incremental gains were made slowly but surely. Uh, and of course, in that particular instance, the Allies had air superiority, which is something the Ukrainians don't have, and it's obviously slowing things up. And I suppose in that context, Patrick, it's possibly surprising that the Ukrainians have made as many gains in such a short space of time as they have. And the other thing, important point to make, general point to make is that I agree with you. This clearly is not the committal of their main battle forces yet. We've seen, you know, a handful of Leopards, frankly, and only a handful have been knocked out. Uh, there is a massive force of of two hundred to three hundred plus. Uh, Western main battle tanks, including Challengers, and we've yet to see any of them now. So there's a lot still to play for, but it's true that this phase of the war is a pretty grinding affair and, of course, inevitably it's taking some toll on the Ukrainians as it was bound to do. Now, at the same time uh, as all of this is going on, this has been an interesting uh, a development a little bit further to the rear, because if we look at the battlefield as a whole, Patrick, what we've got here is these are these, you know, these slow, methodical, but relatively effective attacks on the one hand, but you've also got, which we've seen earlier in the campaign, these strikes much deeper into the enemy line, into Russian lines, against command centres, ammunition depots, etc. And one of these seems to have had quite an effect because we're hearing reports of a strike on a rear headquarters at Henichesk. And that's way down on the north shore of the Sea of Azov, which is said to have killed a Russian major general called Sergei Goryochov, who is or was the chief of staff of the 35th Army. And it's interesting that this has been confirmed by Moscow, who claim that it was a British-supplied storm-shadow missile that killed the general.
0: Yeah, there have been um, mixed messages about how the Russians are holding up. Uh, there's, Like we were saying, there's some evidence they're falling back uh, in a pretty well-organized way. And even sort of mounting counterattacks to protect their flanks as they as they go back. Now, what we've got to remember, this is very very important, is that we're still nowhere near the the main Russian defensive lines, which are twenty kilometres back from where these attacks are going at the moment. And of course, progress is is being slowed by the pretty well prepared, it would seem, defences that the Russians have. Built in, the, in that long waiting period that they've gone through, particularly minefields. The minefields seem to be doing their job, which is obviously slowing down the attack, but also restricting uh, the advancing Ukrainians to well-defined paths, which are obviously going to be covered by artillery, etc. But I do want to stress, on the other hand, there's uh, there is some footage. It's not geolocated, uh, so we don't know where exactly it is. But you know, quite you know, twenty thirty you know, sort of uh, platoon formations just running away in complete disarray. So I don't think this is a uniform picture. And there's also some chilling imagery, I don't know if you saw this, all of a small group of seven or eight Russian troops being confronted by what appears to be a so-called blocking unit. Uh, These are, you know, kind of small kind of teams that are meant to prevent unauthorized retreats. Now, this clip was issued by the Ukrainian military and it shows apparently exhausted Troops running back to be met by a trio of their comrades who, first of all, they fire in the air and then directly at them, seemingly killing several of them. Um, And of course, this, this goes back to the Second World War, doesn't it? At least when such units were deployed in large numbers to reinforce Stalin's order of July 1942, in which he decreed that there was not to be a step back. Not a step back was the slogan. And it seems highly probable that we're seeing this again 80 years on. I mean, back in November, uh, the British MOD confirmed uh, the existence of these blocking units.
1: Yeah, but it would also appear, wouldn't it, Patrick, that we've not so far seen a significant breakdown in discipline. Uh, this might come, of course, uh, not least when, as you say, the Ukrainians attack the main battle line, because, of course, the plan is to withdraw to that. It reminds me a little bit of the Japanese defense of Okinawa in the Second World War, where they had a series of outlines and then their main defensive line. And if the analogy holds true, once that main battle line was cracked, the Japanese did uh, fall back very quickly in huge numbers uh, to their final redoubt of the south part of the island. So, you know, who knows if that will happen here? It's possible, of course. Early days. Um, but nonetheless, signals from the Kremlin, as we mentioned at the top, suggest that Putin is very keen to send a message of reassurance, not so much to the troops at the front, but equally important to the folks at home. On Tuesday, he addressed a group of journalists and mill bloggers. The mill bloggers, by the way, were those who are kind of vaguely supportive (laughs) rather than the heavily critical ones. But in any case, he wanted to tell them that all was well. The Ukrainian counteroffensive he presented as being on a massive scale and resulting in heavy losses for the Ukrainians. And here's the fascinating bit of the briefing for the mill bloggers, Patrick, because In the course of insisting that Ukrainians had lost 160 tanks, in truth, no more than 10 armoured vehicles have actually been uh, independently verified. But in the course of trying to uh, give that figure or giving that figure... He suggested that Russia had only lost 54. Now, that figure is almost certainly accurate, and he clearly inadvertently gave it. So you can see that Russia, despite the fact that they're fighting on the defensive, which is obviously, generally uh, speaking, considered to be an advantage, is still taking enormous losses, 54 in just a week or so. Um And, of course, inevitably, Putin's own figures – have been challenged. That is, the Ukrainian loss figures have been challenged, not only, as you would expect, by Ukraine and its allies, but but also by mill bloggers in Russia, uh, notably those who had not been invited to the briefing. And they basically said that it's, it's a lie. It's not true. And the Ukrainians haven't lost anything like as, as many tanks. But the broader message, of course, from Putin is this. We can handle uh, what's going on and time is on our side. Once the offensive fails, the West will reconsider its support for Ukraine. And in the meantime, he's indicating that there will be no new wave of mobilizations, which will go some way, I suppose, to diffusing potential discontent at home. But do you think that's right, Patrick? Do you think he has any grounds to be optimistic?
0: Not really, Saul. I think we both agree that... uh... What we're being served up here is, is really the kind of, you know, the hors d'oeuvre, if you can put it like that, of the counteroffensive and the main courses still yet to come. And, um, you know, if you look at, okay, we've got this kind of, they are falling back in reasonably good order. But on the other hand, the broader, bigger picture, if you look at what how senior commanders uh, have reacted, um, it doesn't really uh, suggest huge confidence, does it? You know, the decision to blow up the... Kakovka Dam, that looks like a desperation measure to me. And since then, remember, they've blown up at least two other dams, smaller dams. I don't think that's the act of a confident army. But I think uh, that we're not, we can't really at this point make any real assessment, can we? This is going to be a long-haul event. And until the main thrust develops, I don't think we can start actually speaking with any any real kind of authority about about how it's going. But I would say broadly that time is, is not on Putin's side. I think he's wrong about that. Uh, Indeed, it's not actually on anyone's side. Uh, There's been some interesting new developments on the economic front, which, of course, is vital. Uh, Putin needs high oil and gas prices to fund the war. And at the outset of the conflict, uh, OPEC, which is the consortium of oil-producing countries to which Russia also belongs, and uh, which seeks its aim is to control the, the oil market, the energy market, and keep prices high, and they basic OPEC basically sided with uh, Putin at the outset. And Russia agreed to um, cut production in line with the general policy ensuring maximum profits of the other members the twenty three other members however, surprise surprise, uh, the Russians have broken their word and instead they 've been flooding the market with cheap priced oil, which has um, driven the price to down below seventy dollars a barrel. Uh, so, so everyone suffers, and particularly the Saudi Arabians are very annoyed about this. So Russian oil isn't cheap to produce. So, so that income stream, which they really depend on, as I say, to keep the war going, is turning into a trickle. And in the, in the broader kind of grand strategic picture the market that meant so much to them, the European market, is proving quite successful in finding alternative supplies in Algeria, Libya, elsewhere. So in time, um, there, there may be no European market at all for them to come back to when all this ends. Now, of course, you know, this plays on both sides. as huge time sensitivity on the Ukrainian side, as we've just discussed before, but I think Putin is deluding himself if he thinks he can wait this out.
1: Yes, and another sign of desperation, I think, is the continuing bombardment of Ukrainian cities by the Russians. Odessa was hit yesterday by Caliber cruise missiles. Two were shot down, but at least one got through, killing three civilians and injuring 12. And the day before, there was a strike on Krivy which is President Zelensky's hometown, killing at least 12. None of the places hit, needless to say, had the slightest military significance. So this was terror, pure and simple. Okay, you could concede there's an ostensible military purpose in that Ukrainians have to use scarce anti-aircraft resources to knock down the incoming missiles, but the Russians are using up their supplies of ammunition and they will find it hard to find like-for-like replacements, which is why we hear they're planning to build their own equivalent of the Shahid Iranian drones. Now, for the Ukrainians, however, the picture is a bit brighter since the Joint Expeditionary Force Group, which is made up of 10 northern European nations led by the UK, has just announced they're sending £92 million worth of air defense equipment to bolster Ukraine's abilities to protect its critical national infrastructure, civilian population, and frontline personnel. The package will provide radars to help protect from indiscriminate Russian strikes, as well as guns and a significant amount of ammunition. Let's hope it gets there soon. But in the meantime, it's further indication that European determination to support Ukraine is not flagging. Just one bit of extra little news which came through in an email to me this week, Patrick, in relation to the blowing up of the Kakovka Dam. And this was an article sent by someone called Marcus Ola, who's a KC in Gibraltar. And it's a fascinating article that dates from the Second World War and it basically uh, uh, points out that the Red Army did exactly the same thing in 1942, I think it was, to try and slow up the initial German advance. So no, it's probably 1941, actually, August 1941. And I'll just read out a very quick bit about the article because it is quite interesting. The Red Army, pursuing to the utmost its scorch earth policy, has blown up one of the great construction achievements of the Soviet Union, the Lenin Dniproj Dam at Zaporizhia on the Dnipa. That's the Dnipro, of course. The dam, a monument to communism, was the world's greatest hydroelectric power complex. Completed in 1932, it was proudly shown to foreign visitors as an example of communist efficiency, although American engineers built most of it. And the last thing to say is at the end of the article, it says, well, clearly this colossal piece of destructive self-sacrifice yet to be officially announced will deprive the Germans of much of the riches of the Ukraine nothing could better illustrate Stalin's determination to defeat Hitler.
0: And it also, if I remember correctly, deprived a lot of Ukrainians of their lives. I think there was a kind of massive death toll. Uh, So once again, Stalin showing himself perfectly happy to sacrifice his own people. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Life is a Highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just
0: write itself?
1: Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canvas AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
0: Welcome back. Well, before we get into the questions, our producer, James Hodgson, who handles the emails, uh, has noticed um, that it looks like we're being targeted by the Russians or Russian bots in a disinformation campaign. Uh, he's got several emails from the same or similar encrypted private email addresses, and they're all signed off by lots of people, called Derek, strangely enough. Uh, they've all got <laughs> Derek as their first name, but they've got different surnames, which are other kind of generic English sounding names, but with no kind of detail of where they're from, etc. And each of these emails describes uh, the failure of the counteroffensive, why the Ukrainians have blown up the dam, it's not the Russians, etc, etc. And one uh, contained a link to a supposedly credible source for Ukrainian losses, which uh, were given as being very high, which turned out to be the Russian MOD webpage, so not terribly <laughs> credible source. So, um, well done, uh, James, for, for spotting that, and hard luck to the Russian bots.
1: Yeah and it's funny that this has come Patrick just after our interview with Hamish Debrett and Gordon and Hamish was telling us that he he's been targeted by bots uh, and we we suspected we were next and indeed we have been. Okay moving on. Here's a question from Matt in Boston Massachusetts. Um I love this podcast as an American it's hard to get a fair unbiased news source with all the political BS in this country. My question is about Putin and the ridiculous speech you reported on where he claims Ukraine is attacking Russia itself. Do the Russian people believe this? Are they still getting any kind of outside news? They must know he's full of it. Patrick, what do you think?
0: Well, thanks, Matt. I think we've said this before that we don't hold out much hope of persuading the Russian public that they're being fed an utterly false narrative. Um, and even if, even if we had unrestricted access to their airwaves lying to the people is an old age-old communist tradition uh, which Putin has shown that he's very faithful to but I was interested in your comment about what you call the political bs in your own country I must admit I do find it uh, quite alarming the extent of the anti-Ukraine uh, rhetoric uh, coming from the right in particular I'm thinking of the recent outburst by Tucker Carlson who uh, you will know is uh, the commentator recently fired by Rupert Murdoch's Fox News. Now, he's now been signed up by Elon Musk for Twitter, and his first video show went out the other day in which he referred to President Zelensky as, quote, sweaty and rat-like. He was a persecutor of Christians, this being a reference to his moves against the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, we're all in favor of free debate on this podcast, but as people have pointed out, this kind of rhetoric sounds remarkably like a classic anti-Semitic hate speech. And what's truly alarming is that this show clocked up 111 million views. Now, Tucker Carlson is a classic, posh, frat boy from a very privileged background, claiming to be the voice of the people. And he does have a huge following, and I fear we'll be seeing the Republican presidential contenders are looking to him for their lead on the Ukrainian issue in their campaigns.
1: Okay, moving on to an Anonymous from Australia. This is a question about the dam. The culprit is obvious, uh, says Anonymous. It's Russia. And to my mind, the response from Western governments, NATO and the UN has been very feeble the destruction of the dam can be classified as a direct attack on civilians, a war crime and ecocide on a massive scale, says Anonymous. Where are the red flags, the lines in the sand from the West? It's time the civilised world ramps up its assistance for Ukraine so this war can be won decisively sooner rather than later. I'd be very interested in your thoughts. Well, not many thoughts because I basically agree with you, Anonymous. I mean, I, the, only, the only slight uh, kind of quibble I might have is whether or not the destruction of the dam is a, is an absolute deal breaker. I don't think we're quite there yet. We're not far off it. As Hamish de Breton Gordon uh, said in his interview, of course, we could be getting very close to it if they move on from the destruction of the dam to the deliberate uh, sabotage of the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, which of course would in my view, and I suspect in nato's too cross a red line uh, the dam is bad, but is it bad enough really to bring to drag nato into the war? I suspect not, but uh, your broader point they need to be given all the assistance they need to win the war absolutely, and if they had f sixteens we probably would be seeing a you know a more rapid advance in the counteroffensive but that of course is just my view
0: got just a very technical point here from John Faulkner who says he's Australia and ex British army I suppose that means he lives in Australia and he's a former British soldier and he says I'm puzzled why do the media talk about left right banks of the Dnieper the Dnipro he says the river runs north to south uh, and makes a sharp turn where it flows west so he's just asking about the origin of this uh, left right thing well John, as a fisherman, I can confirm it. it's basically pretty straightforward. It's it's defined by the direction the river is flowing in. So if you're facing downstream towards the sea, shall we say, the left bank is on the left and the right bank is on the right, if that makes sense. It's actually simply, uh, the simplest way of locating uh, the geography of a river because, uh, as you say, rivers tend to wander about all over the place.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, Patrick, you're absolutely right. But the issue is when the river is moving all over the place, and you don't know the direction of the sea in relation to the river. And that and that makes it very difficult to know which is left, which is right, when you're just looking at that little uh, bit of the river. But anyway, we're, we're, we're tying ourselves up in knots here, because it's not hugely important. But I do quite <laughs> like the idea of geographically locating a bank of a river, the West Bank, the East Bank, it seems, it seems to make much more sense to me. Now, here's one from someone called Mark Strathan who is an old family friends. He's uh, referring to the Hamish de Breton Gordon interview. Hi, Saul. Long time no speak. Hi, Mark. Uh, Mark is the brother of the author Paul Strothern, who, as it happens, I'm going to be seeing later on this evening. I think you're going to be attending to, Patrick, a dinner in honour of Adam Zamoyski, and uh, Paul will be there anyway. Mark gives a rather uh, encouraging news, I think, that if uh, Putin was mad enough, and of course he possibly is, to deliberately cause an accident at the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, he might have cause not to do it for the simple fact that the prevailing weather tends to blow the wind towards the Russian direction. And uh, Mark very (laughs) usefully gives us a lot of links to weather and prevailing weather uh, which mean, uh, in effect, anyone looking at this in any detail would would realise that it's not worth the candle to do that. I mean, it makes me a little bit more confident it's not going to happen. But thanks so much for that, Mark. That's very interesting. Well, we've got a little bit of confirmation here from Helen Berry from Rotherham that, uh, well, at least my points I made in in the last episode, damn disaster, that I was very fed up with both sideism in the media. And it seems that Helen is too. She writes, It's as though history and the reality of an independent nation being invaded means nothing. And as a result of that, she stopped listening to any other podcasts and is moving permanently to battleground Ukraine.
0: Excellent. That's what we like to hear, Helen. Thank you very much indeed for that. Joachim or Joachim Zander asks a very pertinent question. What's become of the investigation of the North Stream Pipeline, as we we'll all recall, blown up um, last year? Uh, he says, please, can you report on this at this critical point in time? Well, it has been one of the great uh, mysteries of the war, hasn't it, Joachim? We still don't know who's responsible, but I suppose on the argument of who gets the most benefit, you'd have to say it was Ukraine. Uh, not necessarily the Ukrainian state per se, but perhaps some independent players someone at one removed from the state and for once the russians uh, may actually be telling the truth about this but having lied so much of course few people are willing to believe them however we may yet get to the bottom of it because um, the swedish authorities have launched a, a large-scale investigation and they're announced uh, yesterday or the day before i think it was that uh, this is expected report uh, in the autumn so perhaps all will be revealed then
1: I doubt very much all is going to be revealed anytime soon, Patrick. But, you know, as we discussed uh, when we had Phil on the programme a few weeks ago, I think the not just the circumstantial evidence, but the evidence coming out of uh, some of the Scandinavian countries that the concentration of Russian ships in the area at the time or shortly before the explosions took place leaves me in no doubt as to who's responsible. Of course, we don't have absolute confirmation. We probably never will, to be truthful.
0: OK, I'm going to take two together here, one from Gus. Doesn't say where he's from, and another from Gabriel, who's in Las Vegas, Nevada. And they're basically asking the same question, which is looking back at Ukrainian history, or rather the way that the Soviet Union dealt with Ukraine. Is there anything, uh, if Putin was to to go back into the archives, that he would find there and that would give him some indication of how to handle things? Well, the, the sad truth is that there'll be plenty of material in the Soviet archives. On previous policy for dealing with Ukraine, uh, most of it uh, which advocates various forms of mass murder. Uh, Stalin wanted to break the will of the Ukrainian peasants. This is in the early 30s. These are the very people who produced the wheat that fed much of the Russian population. And he did that um, by destroying their independence and forcing them into collective farms. Uh, the chaos that followed resulted in the death of by starvation of, no one quite knows an accurate figure, but uh, three and a half to five million seems to be about right. This was the Holodomor, as the Ukrainians call it, death by starvation. This also had the effect, which was um, beneficial from Stalin's point of view, of crushing any Ukrainian dreams of having their own state. And then, of course, this was followed immediately in '36 uh, uh, by the Great Terror, which affected not just Ukraine, but the whole of the Soviet Union and accounted for the murder of the best part of another million people. This was aimed at vast swathes of the population who, to Stalin's paranoid mind, constituted a threat to him. Needless to say, it was a fantasy. Now, although there was a a brief period when Stalin was out of favor, this is long after his death, and he he was there was a certain amount of accounting for his crimes inside russia he's now very much being rehabilitated in russian official history and his most prominent apologist is none other than vladimir putin so another leader might have concluded uh, from the march of history that trying to eradicate the ukrainian nation is a doomed enterprise but not putin
1: okay we have got a question or at least a correction here from rod from new zealand so i'll i'll let you deal with this patrick because it refers to your your mentioning of 633 squadron as the dam buster squadron i can't tell you the number of people who have contacted me on twitter to oh really oh god that is so embarrassing this is I didn't so mention that because- to you patrick but, but we've actually had a specific <laughs> question so we we thought you might we <laughs> might want to row back on this a little bit
0: yeah yeah okay well this is my I, this is where i sort of done the sackcloth and Ashes, I couldn't believe I could get this wrong. 63 Squadron doesn't, didn't, never existed. It was a movie, uh, but <laughs> 617 Squadron very much did exist. That's the Dambusters, Guy Gibson uh, being the first commander. And I really ought to know this because um, I've actually written a book that featured uh, 617 very prominently um, when, together with uh, 9 Squadron, of course, it, it finally sank uh, the battleship interpret. So yeah, I'm afraid I'm sort of glowing with embarrassment here, Rod. Um, But you're just going to have to put it down to a senior moment, I'm afraid.
1: Okay, we've got a a couple of points made by Stuart Purvis. The first is a question on the Russian motors for blowing up the Kokovka Dam. He agrees with the analysis that this is most likely a Russian move. But it does leave, says Stuart, Crimea with a potentially dangerous water shortage. Yeah. So he's asking the question, does this reflect a disregard for the civilian impact of their actions, even in their own occupied territories? Or is it an indicator that they no longer see the long term potential in holding on to the affected areas and, and have no interest in the long term damage? Well, two very good questions, Stuart. I think it's the former I think what you've got to kind of factor into all of these decisions by the Russians, uh, ruthless and and kind of predetermined as they seem in advance, is that there's always the potential for the cock-up factor. Oh, we didn't quite realise that that would be the consequence. But I think the actual answer is simpler than all of that, which is that, yes, there are consequences for civilians, but in the immediate determination to slow down uh, what they see, of course, as a Very dangerous Ukrainian counteroffensive. They were prepared to take almost any consequences. And the thought of civilians being caught up in this is neither here nor there to the Russians. Let's be truthful about this. So I suspect that's the reality of what went on there. But thank you for that question, Stuart. He also goes on to uh, make an interesting point about the interview with Anatole Levin, which got a lot of pushback, uh, as some of you will know from our response in the subsequent episodes to that interview. In Stuart's view, he thinks it's great to hear some challenging perspectives on the podcast. There are too many echo chambers around that just reinforce your existing views. And in a complex world, it is important we all make time to listen to voices that might not be the same as our own. Thanks for that, Stuart.
0: To finish off, we've got a couple here, which again are on the same sort of theme. Kerry Scruggs asks one question and Bob from Somerset asks the other. Um, I think Kerry is saying Putin's plan is to seems to be to outlast... The West, is there any relatively modern historical precedent for this strategy working? And Bob asks, can either of us give any example where a war has been won without incursion into the enemy homeland? They're, they're both kind of sort of linked, aren't they, really? I mean, immediately coming to mind, I'm thinking about our previous podcasts or where you know the Falklands campaign, okay, it was fought over contested territory the islands were claimed by both sides but it, our victory the british victory there did bring about regime change on the mainland so i suppose that could be one example uh, i suppose then looking at recent history the first gulf war it was a victory claimed as a victory it, it put Saddam back in his box uh, for a while as far as i'm concerned yeah that was that was a good result what do you think? Yeah,
1: sir? and I, I think that is a good example, Patrick, because um you know, I remember talking to Peter Delabilia about this, and he said there was a lot of pressure on them, particularly from the press and lots of questions uh from from also MPs as to why we hadn't carried on and finished the job by going into Iraq and toppling Saddam in the first place. And his point was, well, the job was to get them out of Kuwait. That was what we were there for. And that's exactly the same argument holds true for Ukraine. The job is not to invade uh, Russia and, and cause regime change. If regime change happens as a result of the Russians being kicked out of Ukraine, then all well and good. But I think Dolor Billia made an important point that if you do go in and force regime change, what next? And of course, that's exactly what happens in 2003. So uh, be careful what you wish for in that sense. And I know a lot of people are saying, why don't why aren't Ukraine allowed to attack into Russia? Much better, in my view, if they stick to cleaning out the Russians, if they can, of course, from Ukraine and keeping, frankly, the moral high ground on all of this. Okay, well, that's all we have time for. Do keep the questions coming in to battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. And do please listen next week when we'll have another great interview. And also, we'll be rounding up all the news and latest analysis on Friday. Goodbye.